Golazzo is brought to you by ThoughtMob, the essential app for your matchday experience. Get live scores, detailed match stats, notifications for every goal and breaking news from more than 200 leagues and cups around the world. Download it for free on Android and iOS now by searching for ThoughtMob. That's F-O-T-M-O-B. Never miss a moment with ThoughtMob. Marini's Media. Golazzo. Today, a story of how Juve became Juve. With the trio magical, the holy trinity of John Charles, Omar Sibori and Giampiero Boniperti. And how they made a generation grow up gobby. Golazzo! And hello listeners, it's the first of our remote Golazzos. Uh, but we have on the line Gabriele Marcotti. Hello. And also James Horncastle. Presente. How nice. Gab, a bit of a history lesson for us today. Why are the Trio Magico so significant historically? I think outside Italy, um, there's no question that these three have been have been overlooked, which is kind of odd because Sivori at the time um, was one of the brightest stars in Argentina, one of the world's powerhouses. John Charles to this day, when people make you know the all-time British 11s and mix and match everybody, he's often in there either as a center forward or as a center half. And the fact that these guys came together, you know, at Juventus at that time with Giampiero Boniperti would be an absolute icon uh, of the club. Not just you know later on, people of my generation remember him as a great president and, and the face of the club and whatever else, but of course prior to that. He was one of the greatest Italian players of all time. You know, 178 goals uh, over a 15-year career. He only ever played uh, for Juve. He was a legendary player. And this confluence of these three players, so, so different, and I'm sure we'll get into that, it just created something special. It gave you, it was almost as if, you know, today we take it for granted, but the diversity and, and adding different elements, different outlooks, different ways to play football, to view football, to live football, can make you stronger overall, can make you greater than some of, the, than, than some of your parts. Back then, that wasn't immediately obvious to people. And I think Sivori, Charles, and Boniperti, as a trio, helped change that thinking. James, this was the side that became the, the first great uh, Juve team of the post-war era and in many ways inherited the, the mantle of Il Grande Torino. Yeah, I mean, Juventus had not won uh, a lot for a long time. Um, certainly since they won five league titles in a row in the 30s. They'd only won two since then. So we're talking about a 25-year period um, where they weren't the Juventus that we expect um, them to be now. And I think this team is the one um, to which all others are compared, be it the the 82 um, side, um, which would go on that run uh, with the World Cup winners from that year and also Platini and Boniek, to the 90s side um, that won uh, the European Cup under Lippi and to the current side, which has obviously been winning uh, the league for the last uh, eight and a half years. And the players that we're going to talk about, that magic trio, they uh, are all touchstones, reference points for players 
you know, today. Be it if there's a great Juventus strike partnership, that strike partnership is compared with Omar Sivori and John Charles. If there's a great number 10, that number 10 is seen as an heir to Sivori in the way that Platini was, in the way that Zidane was, in the way that Del Piero was. Um, you know, you could even see it with uh, with, with Bonipetti as well in, the, in these people who so identify with Juventus that their life does not end with Juventus when their career ends um, as a footballer. They go and work with the club, um, be it um, like Blonde Pavel at the moment, be it what many people expected of of Del Piero when uh, when he was mercilessly shown, shown the door towards the end of his time at, um, uh, at Juventus. So I think that is the, the main quality of this side and its place in history. It's the one that that all others are are compared to at Juve. Well, as winning Juve sides go, I think this is one of the more likeable, but we'll get into that as we travel back now then to the late 1950s. And in Italy, these are boom times, the time of Vespers, of a new thing called Tivu, and Anita Ekberg in the Trevi Fountain. Fiat has launched the Cinquecento. Rome is hosting the Olympic Games, and across the country, they're living La Dolce Vita. In Turin, though, as James mentions, they're having a bit of a problem. A team that did win five titles in a row pre-war is now struggling. Back-to-back ninth places and a narrow brush with relegation the previous season means it's time to take action. Up steps Umberto Agnelli, the freshly elected president of Juventus, just 22 years old, so young, in fact, that he's still doing his national service. And what does he do? He goes out and spends some lira. James, imagine being 22-year-old Umberto Agnelli in 1957, uh, <laughs> going out and uh, your family owns fear. You're 22. There's no financial fair play, and he effectively he buys like Messi and Robert Lewandowski. Yeah, and uh, to be 22 at the time as well, and be given the keys to this. Uh, well, let's let's keep the Fiat and Ferrari kind of uh, notions going of this this supercar. Um, you know, we look we look at kind of comparisons today as terms of presidents who are kind of of a similar age. You look at Steven Zhang, who's, what, 20, 27, 28 at Inter. And uh, Umberto Agnelli was younger than than him. And uh, I suppose it's a fairly uh, novel and innovative way of going about running a football club to just, you know, sort of go and sign two players who considered, you know, the best in their positions uh, in, in the world. But also, let's not forget that it was a time when less was known about um, players, less was known about... The football that was played in other countries, you know, Argentina felt a lot further away then than it does now. So there was, uh, yeah, there's that story about Umberto Agnelli kind of putting the the idea of signing Sivori for all this money to to the board um, and uh, and Fiat, and them saying absolutely not, you cannot be seen to be spending that amount on this player. And he he went ahead and did it anyway, and uh, and you have to say that investment paid off. Certainly did. I, I, I think this. I mean, James is absolutely correct about how the world was a much, much bigger place back then uh, than it is now. You know, and and just for context, I mean, I'm sure nobody at Juve, except for sort of far-flung scouts who used to, you know, send letters by steamship, had probably ever seen Sivori play. They just knew that oh, you know, he played for River. 
and they were quite a good team, and he was very young, and uh, and, and the same thing with, with John Charles, you know, all you necessarily really knew about him was that he scored a ton of goals for Leeds United, was a top scorer in, in, in the English Championship. Well, Juve were aided in, in signing these two by the fact that their former player, Renato Cesarini, was at River Plate, uh, managing Sivari to two uh, consecutive titles there. Sivari had also been South American champion that summer, 1957. So that led to him making the move across one of uh, the three Argentina players who came across that summer, actually. As for John Charles, he was flagged up, apart from the fact that he'd become a, a legend in, in English football anyway, but he was also flagged up by the um, the interesting figure of Gigi Peronacci, the man who invented the Anglo-Italian Cup. And apparently his contract negotiations, John Charles's contract negotiations with Juve, were actually conducted by Kenneth Walsenholm, author, of course, of probably the most famous line in English-language football commentary ever, some of the crowd are on the pitch. They think it's all over. Well, it is now, which, of course, comes from World in Motion by New Order, but also from the 1966 <laughs> World Cup final. And later in life, and less significantly, he was, of course, the voice of Channel 4's Football Italia show. But anyway, 1957, into this extraordinary uh, landscape of booming Italy, they arrived to join the big star of the team already, Giampiero Boniperti, who the man who would later become... Mr. Juventus, Kira Costui, Gab. Giampiero Boniperti, I, even as a kid, so basically when I was a kid, he was, he was president of Juve. He was sort of the ultimate institution. And he was somebody who you kind of took for, you kind of took for granted. Now, as a player, he, he, he always had this sort of very, I mean, to me at least, this sort of very patrician, aristocratic demeanor. He did not look like a man of the people, although I'm I'm sure he didn't grow up wealthy or privileged. Maybe James knows more about uh, his upbringing, but he he had these sort of blonde locks, which prompted people to call him uh, Marisa, which is a woman's name. And I think what he did later in becoming Juve president, leading club for so many years, kind of overshadows the fact that he's almost never mentioned in the list of greatest Italian players ever. But then you look at his longevity, you look at the amount of goals he scored, you look at the fact that he was a center forward, often on teams that weren't that good, as, as James mentioned, and, you know, in the mid-50s, Juve were not a great side. And then later reinventing himself uh, deeper, almost as a, as, as a midfielder. He was a phenomenal footballer, first and foremost. He played for Juve forever, it certainly feels. And he came to symbolize this sort of Stila Juve, this this Juve ethos, which again some people might say is just a facade or whatever, but this idea of of no of privilege of, of noblesse oblige of doing things the right way and and again Juve critics will point out that you know all that flew out the window a long time ago, but I think he really embodied it as long as he was there as president. You know I thought he was the epitome of this. Right. I don't think he came from a privileged background. I've seen him described as a contadino furbo, almost like a, a crafty country bumpkin. Supposedly, he used to get his uh, match premiums paid in cows, uh, pregnant cows. Yeah, and he, he would... Uh, Gianni Agnelli knew that uh, Bonipetti was the right person to become president because of how shrewd he was when he, he said, look, we'll go to this farm outside Novara uh, and we'll go... And pick these cows and and Bonipetti it became clear he was picking all the ones that were pregnant um so essentially 
he he would get double the bonus. And uh, he, I mean, Gab talks about that Stile Juve, which you know, on the one hand, was uh, being seen to be doing things the right way, which you know, I think a lot of people outside of who have stereotypes of Juve wouldn't necessarily uh, associate with them. Um, but also just being quite a a hard taskmaster when it came to running the club. You know, for a player at Juventus, you'd think you'd be at the pinnacle, the kind of money that you could command. And he would always turn it around and say, well, actually, it's a privilege for you to play for Juventus. So, you know, I'll I'll basically decide what you make. And it'll be probably a lot less than what Moratti will pay you at Inter or what whoever's at Milan will be paying you at that time. And... Yeah, that was just the way that how, how Juventus did things um, for many, many years. I mean, I, I, I had a um, year was 1986. This is the one time I remember meeting Boniperti. Uh, I was living in, in Tokyo. I was in school. I think I was 12 years old at the time. And Juventus, of course, had won the... Um, it might even been ni- late 1985. They, they had won uh, the European Cup... Uh, at Heysel the year before and so back then you didn't have the uh, much loved club world championship that you have today you had a one-off match called the Intercontinental Cup uh, which was held in in Tokyo and it pitted the Juventus of Michel Platini and and Boniek and those guys um, against Argentinos Juniors which was Maradona's old team which had this guy named Claudio Borghi who was a whole other uh, I know James would would have plenty to say about him because it's a whole other uh, it's a whole other subject, but my memory of this is you know obviously not many times living in Tokyo. We knew Trapattoni because he's from Cusano Milanino like us, so we were invited to the uh, to the Juventus uh, training, and I remember back then Michel Platini was not very nice, just kind of rushed through signing no autographs, and obviously we spoke we spent we you know we spent some time speaking to Trapattoni, but the guy who stayed there for like twenty minutes. And talk and ask questions. What's it like living in Japan? What do you think about this? What do you about that? And who seemed genuinely interested cows. in engaging was Giampiero Boniperti. No, we didn't discuss cows at that the stage. The Wagyu beef. <laughs> yes, or Wagyu beef or, you know. But yeah, he was the kind of guy that always put you at ease and he was he was a real gentleman. At least that's how I experienced him and, and that's how I saw him. I mean, to take it back to the playing days, you can imagine him being sort of the star player on this team that's kind of underachieving and he's a striker. And then who do they bring in? They bring in two other forwards and he's got to accommodate them. It was a a really interesting trio because they were, or at least they appear, such different personalities. You had the gentle giant, John Charles. It's phenomenal. Centre forward, Al Inglese. You had Omar Silvari, who was kind of like, uh, well, angel with dirty face from that Argentina group, but also... Uh, almost like a proto-Maradona, short, incredibly skillful, deeply irreverent. There's a, a famous photo from that first season together of the three of them. They're all there in the, that classic open-necked uh, U- Juve jersey with the broad black stripes. They've got the width right, James, and the, the, the nice wide white collars. Uh, on the left, Sivore, he's got his hand on his hips. He's regarding the camera with his usual insouciance. Boniperti's there with a furrowed brow. Uh, kind of high priest of the Juventus religion. Anchoring the scene there is John Charles, who mentioned the, the name, the, the gentle giant, was a completely different figure to the other two. How did it work, these three guys together? Well, Charles and Sivori formed one of the great strike partnerships of uh, not just the 1950s, but it remains a kind of touchstone whenever 
Um, you have a partnership in Italian football at the moment, um, you know, be it at Juventus when it was Trezeguet Del Piero or, you know, more recently with Carlos Tevez and, uh, and Llorente. And as Gab was saying, when we were discussing Boniperti, he, he essentially had to change his, his role um, to accommodate those two players. So he went from playing um, up front. He was entering his 30s at the time um, and he went to play kind of in midfield, really, and, uh, and be more of a... The guy who was pulling the strings had that uh, sense of invention in attack. We'd also contribute goals as well, but I don't think ever got into double figures um, when those two um, were in front. Um, and you know, saw himself as the guy who's putting the bullets in the chamber rather than firing them himself. Right. And 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 just just to, again to contextualize this a little bit about Boniperti being a company man about putting the team first. I, I just looked up his numbers because unsurprisingly I I haven't committed them to memory. But he scored 178 Serie A goals in his career, which going from memory. I know a lot of a number of people sort of passed the 200 goal mark recently in in like the last 10 years, but I'm going to go on limb and say he's still in the top 10 or close to it. And you know, he didn't have the benefit of playing 38 league games back then. So he was he was a center forward on the most popular team in in Italy still. You know, even when they were doing badly. And to me, the idea to have the vision, the intelligence, I know people are going to say, oh, Wayne Rooney tried to do the same. I know, not quite the same thing. Um, to say, all right, these two guys come in. This dude, Charles, is bigger, stronger than I am. He scored a ton of goals in England where the football's really good. This other guy, see what he can do things with a ball that I can't even imagine. Let me play for them. Let me go into a position where I can you know, unlock the best of their ability. And... From what I understand as well, from from speaking to people who are contemporaries and new historians, he went out of their way to make them welcome. Um, you know, remember, Ian Rush moved what thirty years later, and he just couldn't settle at all in Turin. Uh, John Charles, and again, different personalities, different characteristics, or whatever. But you know, John Charles did it, and maybe it was he was easier with Charles. But Sivori was a real piece of work. Mm. You know, you described him before as angel with dirty face. I mean, Sivori. There were, people have made parallels with Maradona because he was short. I don't like comparing anybody with Maradona unless his name is Lionel. Um, but, you know, he had that inventiveness. He had that wild streak. He played, you know, with no shin pads and his socks down. But he was also a really, really dirty, dirty player. Um, you know, he was, you know, again, a player of his era. But, you know, part Luis Suarez biting people, part, you know, Johnny Giles kicking people, part... Guys like that, dark arts of Sergio Ramos, all in this little package of a person. And it was such a striking contrast with John Charles, who was the ultimate gentleman who, you know, as the story goes, was was, was never booked and hardly ever mm-hmm. fouled anybody. Yeah, I think the only time that for all the provocation he received, uh, both in Italy and, and outside, uh, John Charles, the only time he raised his hand to a fellow professional was when he actually slapped Sivari reports differ as to what the issue was but Sibri apparently completely lost his head in a cup match was going off at the referee and Charles just walked over to him slapped him and brought <laughs> brought him back in line yeah I mean Sibri ended up picking up so many suspensions that I think he was banned for 33 games during his, his Juventus career and there's one story about um, a Catania defender 
going up to him during a game and saying, being so frustrated with him, saying, look, I'm going to, the next time we play each other, I'm going to break your leg. Um, and Sivari ended up going, what, to the Massimino or Chibali to play that game and thought he would get one in on him first and just went sort of studs up into his knee and completely took him out. Um, so, I mean, that was a kind of measure of the man um, that was, you know, as you said, in terms of temperament, in terms of uh, Corinthian kind of sporting values was the, the complete opposite to uh, to John Charles and, and Bonnie Perti. You know, we often talk about street footballers and stuff like that. He literally played the game as if his very survival depended on it and was willing to go and win or or protect himself by any means necessary. And the stuff that we see now, uh, we, in some cases, you know, he said the biting, the scratching, the diving. I mean, he, he literally, he kind of went into this kind of trance when the game began and he really felt as if he didn't get the result. You know, his, his very existence would be would be in peril. But at the same time, there was tremendous joy to his, his performance. At least, you know, when you watch the old footage back now, to see him do a tunnel on on other players, to see to see him sit an opposition goalkeeper down and then just pass it into the the net, he was there was tremendous cheek uh, and wit to his play as well. Yeah, and I think he is. Whilst we talk about strike partnership, he is seen as one of the kind of classic Juventus number tens that gets talked about with Platini, uh, with with Del Piero. And uh, yeah, you, you you hear about some of the the displays of just just how how much of an extrovert he was on the pitch. How he seemed to play for the camera and really toy with his opponents and provoke them. Um, again, one of the anecdotes about Sivori is that they're playing against Sampdoria. He goes around the goalkeeper. He stops the ball on the line, waits for a defender to come from him, uh, beats that defender, and then puts it puts it past him and scores. Um, and I think Gianni Agnelli, Umberto's brother, always had a kind of soft spot for these artists, artists of the ball, and he definitely was 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 one of them. Um, and I think for all the the part of the, the fearlessness really kind of played into the showmanship um, as well. He was an entertainer, you know, well before his time. There's another story about him playing Padova where. Juve have just completely won the game. I don't know what the score was. And he actually said to the goalkeeper, he was taking a, a penalty, he actually told him which side he was going to take it so the goalkeeper could, you know, avoid a ruta figura. Of course, being Sivori, he then kicked it the other way. <laughs> the keeper then tried to come up and, and hit him. But that's just the guy he was, having fun. Well, if Sivori was a controversial figure, there was no doubt that everybody loved John Charles. You're listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show, in association with FopMob. Some people say a man is made out of mud. A poor man's made out of muscle and blood. Muscle and blood and skin and bones. A man that's weak and a back that's strong. Yeah, there was Il Gigante Buono in 1960 on the show Il Musichieri, which would be what, The Music Man about to perform his cover of the Platters classic, The 16 Tons, which he released as a double A-side single, the flip side of which is actually this. I found my love in Portofino Down in that small Italian bay Love in Portofino, uh, backed by William Galassini, 
and his orchestra. Gab, this was a, a time of mass migration, economic migration, to the north and particularly Turin. Mentioned the fact that the Cinquecento had just come out, Fiat had acquired Vespa, they were all over the place. In terms of the kind of economic backdrop to all of this, what was the impact socially of John Charles and the, the Trio Magico, as they were known? Well, as, as you mentioned, James, the this was the era when, you know, post-war Italy went through an economic boom. The north of Italy, uh, which had you know, long been the, the strongest bit economically, they rebuilt very quickly with the help of the Marshall Plan and whatever else. And, and Turin really was one of the drivers. And so they needed manpower to work the factories. And a ton of people came up from mostly from the south of Italy. And here you get into a, a, a sort of a, a bit of a historic, I mean, this, I should say, probably helped mark the history of Juventus with its fans. The reason Juventus are so popular in the south of Italy is that a lot of people had relatives who moved to Turin, started watching the team. Uh, a lot of other people, you know, maybe lived in Turin, worked in Turin, and then went home to the south and passed it on to their friends. You got the sense that Juventus, and by extension Fiat, was much more than an Italian company, much more than an Italian concern. It was a national concern, and it really was an international concern. You touched upon it before. You know, in one summer, they had, you know, spent an enormous amount of money to bring in, you know, the best center forward in Europe, and arguably, and, you know, one of the best players, most promising players in, in South America. And at this stage, you know, John Charles, I think he was 26 years old, something like that. You know, he built a whole career in England, uh, with Leeds United, with with a big club, and to give a sense also of the economic might, as as legend goes, Elland Road was rebuilt with the John Charles fee, and the Monumental in Buenos Aires was rebuilt with the Sivori fee, and there was just such excitement. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, you had foreign stars in Italy who, who you know, foreign stars we had before were off of the Nazis and stuff like that who occupied our country. So we had, now all of a sudden, you know, we had these other dudes here who were good and, 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 and helpful. And John Charles had just such an understated charisma that, you know, it was impossible to dislike him. I, I'm trying to think of, you touched upon this before, of Juventus players post John Charles who were universally loved by, by fans of other clubs as well. And, I really struggle to think of too many. I don't know about you, James, if you can think of anybody who comes close to, to John Charles. I think it's, it's, it's really difficult. Well, Buffon would be the example, maybe. Zoff, I mean, possibly. Shirea, Shirea. Hmm. Yeah, there's some people who say not so nice things about Shirea if you go to certain stadiums. I, I mean, <laughs> I, I, I think... Buffon, the problem with Buffon is slight overexposure, slight... Right. He's a little too centrist, you know. I, I mean, yeah, obviously these are all popular players, but mm. I don't think anybody's going to say anything negative ever about John Charles. Ravanelli. I'm kidding. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Yeah, Pasquale Bruno, Antonio Conte, yeah. Go there. Go, let's go <laughs> Montero. There, yeah. Yeah. Montero, <laughs> yeah. Montero. Why would... Well, John Charles was voted uh, by Juve fans their best uh, foreign player ever, ahead of the likes of Boniek, uh, Liam Brady, Platini, Zidane even, and Sibori. So that's a measure of how high the esteem for him was. That's also important because 
while some of us on this podcast sometimes like to be critical of Juve, um, I think that speaks really well about the way they've preserved their history and their sense of history. Because, you know, you do these polls more recently, like Man United does it, and it's like freaking, you know, Cantona or Ronaldo finished first or second. Um, there's a recent, you know, Inter, I don't know who they'd have, maybe Mourinho is their greatest ever player. Um, I, there's always a recency bias to these. And Juve, I think, more than most, they do a really good job of keeping their history alive, you know, narrated, narrating their history. The fact that John Charles could win a, a vote like this ahead of of Zidane and, and Platini, you know, when most Juve fans would have never seen this guy play, mm. I think speaks volumes about them and, and is a credit, I think, to, to Juve's fan base and, and the way they preserve their history. What a glorious slice of history it was, though. Four years these three were together. They won the title three times and uh, threw in a cup of uh, Coppa Italia's in there as well and scoring goals for fun. I mean, it was it just looks such an entertaining side to watch, James. Yeah, I mean, in terms of in terms of the goals that they scored in that first season, um, you know, that partnership, um, I think ended up with 50 goals. Um, John Charles was the top scorer. Sivari also got more than 20. Um, and that was pretty much uh, how it was for uh, for that period. Um, they would pretty much take turns in, in who was going to be the top scorer um, in Serie A. I suppose the the one knock on Juve, and this is um, you know, rightly or wrongly, people consider it part of their DNA, is that you know in their in their mid fifties as the European Cup was starting, you saw other Italian teams at least get to the final, um, like Fiorentina, um, like Milan, and this Juventus side performed very poorly in in Europe. Um, you know, they got knocked out in the preliminary rounds against no name teams um, from Austria and Bulgaria. They, they even lost one game 7-0, which you know is really surprising when you think of uh, the talent that it had in this team. Um, you know, they just couldn't make it stick away from home. And yeah, you know, obviously this is a time when you you knew less about your opponents, less about the environment in which you were going into, and so home advantage really uh, really mattered, but I suppose that's the the one surprising thing. I think they only reached the quarterfinals once uh, against Real Madrid towards the end um, of of this team's run. And perhaps if they'd done something in Europe as well, uh, these players would not just be remembered fondly among Juventus fans and Italians. They would have a, a slightly bigger following. James is right. In some ways, history could have taken a very different turn, right? The, the reason Real Madrid are synonymous with the European Cup is that, you know, they won the first five editions. And then, of course, it was Benfica and Eusebio and whatever else. And the fact that Juventus weren't able to make a dent on that, it does make you wonder if they had won one of those, even just one of those, you know, would would the history of European football then have taken a different turn? Um, would these guys, I mean, Boniperti was always going to, I think it was... 35 in 1961 when sort of the the, the group was broken up uh, so he was always gonna gonna leave but might we then have had more investment you know might this group have stayed together might there never have been a grande inter possibly uh, in the 60s might Juventus be where Real Madrid are now uh, with different choices made back then uh, you know there, there's almost like a like a parallel question with it and I think unquestioningly probably out of all the Juve sides because if you remember I think Juventus played in something like 11 European Cups before they, they finally did win it. And, of course, they won it, uh, uh, you know, in the circumstances that we know about. Heisel, 
They lost the final against Ajax in 72, I think it was. And then it was always a sort of big obsession for uh, for Gianni Agnelli, the Agnelli family, that, wait a minute, we are so important, even freaking Nottingham Forest and Aston Villa win European Cups, and we haven't won any. And it was this big obsession, which, which would later turn into obsession, and it wouldn't have happened if this team, which I think was clearly the best Juve team ever until, you know, until, you know, you can argue at some point in the 80s or 90s, if this team had delivered. Well, only four years together for the Trio Magico. The final game that they had in Siemi came in uh, June 1961, and it was pretty unusual. A match against Inter Milan, uh, which they'd already held once back in April. Back then, the crowd at the Stadio Comunale was so big that it actually spilled out over and onto the pitch. And after a while, the referee decided to suspend the encounter. Inter were then awarded the game as a 2-0 victory. And a series of results as the season came towards its end saw them actually pull level uh, with Juve at the top of the table, only for the federation to then decide or to then accept Juve's appeal against Inter being awarded that earlier clash. Uh, the Federation now decided that the two teams should replay that game after the final match of the season. However, did uh, Juve president Umberto Agnelli manage to convince the Federation president uh, to accept Juve's appeal? I don't know. Who was the Federation president? <laughs> Umberto Agnelli. Oh, my word. Anyway, so following this news, Inter promptly went and lost 2-0 at Catania in the infamous Clamoroso al Chibari match where they're basically two late goals now. I mean, it's just, mentioned Kenneth Walsenholm's line. This is probably the, one of the most famous lines of Italian commentary, no? Clamoroso al Chibari. Yeah, no question. Although there's still some debate about whether, about the context in which they say a few years ago they dug out the original tapes from Tutto il Calcio Minuto per Minuto and, and did, was it, did he actually say it? Was it paraphrased differently? It's um, it's a bit like play it again, Sam, in, in Casablanca. And does right. he actually say it, or does he not say it? Does he say it differently? But yes, right. it, it was a, it was a seminal moment, and some might say a sign of things to come. It was kind of the unbelievable Jeff of its time. These two late goals, greeted uh, <laughs> with real surprise by the Tutto il calcio minuto per minuto uh, commentator. Anyway, following that game, they had lost effectively the title Inter, and were then forced by the federation to replay this game. Uh, Angelo Moratti, the president and owner, uh, decided to send the youth team along to play this rematch with Juventus, a youth team which featured a whole bunch of people you'll never have heard of, but one kid in particular Ooh. Who, who was going to have a, quite a big role to play. And that would be Sandro Mazzola, of course. Yeah, 17 years of age. Yeah, Sandro Mazzola, whose uh, who's father, Valentino, was part of the uh, Grande Torino side, which you mentioned Umberto Agnelli's youth. The first game that Umberto Agnelli went to was a Grande Torino game between that side and Roma, which they won, I think, 7-0. Um, and Umberto almost became a Torino fan that day. Wow. But that would be, be breaking the family ranks there, given the events you know, his long history with you. Wait, James, help me out hmm. here, because my Agnelli history isn't as uh, complete as yours. You talk about sliding doors moments. So Umberto Agnelli goes to that game, Torino destroys everybody, he gets hooked on Toro, which means that he never becomes Juve president, right? He's still in the Agnelli family, but he's like the black sheep weirdo of the family. Does that then mean that Andrea Agnelli then grows up a Torino fan, 
And then we never have the Super League. We never have the monobrow. We never have all these stupid uh, trials and, and, and lawsuits over the number of Scudetti they won. Um, and we don't have, yeah, we don't have the ECA in the European Super League. And him saying that, you know, having Atalanta in Europe is worse than having Roma in Europe and stuff like that. Is, is this really what would have happened? If Umberto Agnelli had, had been had fallen for Toro that day, it's it's a dimension that I would like to step into. <laughs> think think yeah. of all the good stories we'd have missed out on. Back on the tenth of June in nineteen sixty one, anyway, that nine one victory was the result for Juventus against uh, Inter's effectively Primavera side Sivori, scoring six goals, which I believe is a record. No one's ever done it since. Obviously, there were special circumstances. <laughs> to that game, but six goals in a City A match? As you know, teams in Italy, it's considered rude to run up the score and whatever, and bad practice, and that's not how you respect your opponent. Sivori obviously didn't care about all that. Sivori would have scored 60 goals if he could have. Sivori would probably go and try to score 100 goals against, you know, his two-year-old granddaughter, because that was the kind of person that Sivori was. Yeah, meaning this game against Inter's youth team. He was doing a bit of a Michael Owen against 13-year-old goalkeeper uh, on this one. It was, though, their last game together. Bonaparte announced his retirement afterwards. Uh, that summer, John Charles returned to Leeds. Uh, Sivari stayed in Turin uh, until 1965, uh, becoming later that year, 1961, the first Italian player to win the Ballon d'Or as Europe's premier footballer, Italian player, because... Like Angelillo, he'd also become an Oriundo, one of the Oriundi, um, changing uh, allegiances, playing, as it then uh, transpired, nine times for the Azzurri, for Italy, scoring eight goals, uh, which is pretty remarkable strike rate. It goes in nine games and representing Italy at the 1962 uh, World Cup in Chile. And how did they do? It was the disastrous 1962 uh, World Cup in Chile, of course, where um, Italy, thinking they were going to be clever, having all these uh, naturalized South Americans, what happened? They ended up getting into a massive brawl with the uh, home team, uh, Chile, and uh, aided by, I think, one of the worst refereeing performances in the history of humanity, but a guy who just totally lost control, ended up being knocked out and coming home in shame. Although, I have to say, it's hard to tell which was most shameful of those World Cups. 1962, when they got into ridiculous fisticuffs with the opponents, and you can see this on YouTube. 1966, where they lost to freaking North Korea and the, and the dentist, Pak Duik. Or, indeed, 1958, when they didn't even qualify. Well, indeed. Sivari hangs around, but ends up going down to Naples. John Charles goes back to Leeds, and Boniperti steps away for now from Juventus. Umberto Agnelli also left his role with the club, went off to run things at Fiat, or at least helped doing so. But Boniperti was to come back, uh, when was this, 10 years later, when he comes back as the AD and then the, the president. He has an absolutely great as his influence was or great as his performance was as a player. His success as, as president is, is remarkable. Nine titles won under him, two Italian Cups, that Intercontinental Cup, you mentioned uh, European Cup, one in the most uh, tragic of circumstances, a Cup Winners' Cup and a UEFA Cup as well. I mean, it, you know, it's funny, James, because that's a very Italian thing, counting the victories of, of, of a president or chairman. I mean, you don't see Daniel Levy going around uh, talking about the number of titles Spurs have well, won since he's been With very good there. reason. 
Exactly. <laughs> or Bruce Buck doing so. Let, let me put it that way. Um, but you're right. I, I, I think Boniperti really took Juve into the modern era um, as, a, as a president. Obviously, there was Gianni Agnelli behind the scenes. But, you know, I think that was the dominant Juve. And then after Boniperti stepped away, we know what happened next with the cuddly Moggi, Giraudo and Bettega taking over and then the wheels coming off. Well, he was phenomenally successful as a president and as a player. I'd love to have been able to see the Boniperti, Sivori, John Charles team in action. And you mentioned the way that players are always compared to them. How do they stack up, do you think, guys, against the other Juve iterations that we've enjoyed over the decades? Well, I think the the 82 um, side, um, there are so many kind of Hall of Famers and legends in in that team um, who, you know, transcended Juventus. Um, you know, you, you, you think of Shirea, Gentile and uh, the likes of Platini and Boniek. Um, Platini going on that run of winning what the... The Ballon d'Or, three three straight years. Um, the team regularly getting to European finals, um, you know, losing ones that they they perhaps deserve to win, and uh, winning one that I think no one wanted to win. Um, but that period, I think, particularly on the Trapattoni between the, the sort of late seventies into the eighties, was uh, I think when Juventus were at. At their most powerful um, in terms of Italian talent, in terms of being able to go out and buy the best talent um, around the world. So I still think I still think that team is very very iconic in terms of what you think about when you think about Juventus. This one wasn't maybe the best, but maybe it was the most simpatico. Then Gab. Yeah, probably not so much to Angelo Moratti or even uh, a, a little young Massimo at the time. Um, but there's no question that it was one of the most colorful Juve sides. It was one that neutrals uh, could see the significance of uh, as well and, and, and get behind. And, and that was entertaining and significant. And, you know, I, I don't want to say one that gets, that gets overlooked um, because Juve have, as we've said, a strong sense of history. But without question... You know, along with the you know Combi Rosetta Monti side of and and, and of the, you know and the five straight titles in the thirties, um, probably you know one of the three most significant Juve sides in history. What was the other one? Now you're putting me on the spot. Okay. Um, no, but top three. I, I I I would probably say, um, given the the significance. I mean, the third one is probably a toss-up between a Juve side, the the the, the, the Platini, Boniek, and the six world champion sides, uh, six world champions of of the early eighties. Um, yeah, because look, those guys won what two league titles, and and they won at Heysel in those circumstances. But you know, we really was a side that was on board for for the great rise of Italian football um, in in the, in the mid eighties. And then I think you would also have to, uh, you know, throw in the Del Piero Juve side that, you know, ended up reaching the um, Champions League final three times uh, in a row in in the 90s. Of course, memorably winning it in 1996. Mm -hmm. Indeed so. Well, that was the Trio Magico, but that's where we wrap up this edition of Golazzo. We'll leave you with a little bit more of the great John Charles with love in Portofino. And from all of us here, it's a Vida Dirci. 
And when it's night in Portofino The stars are twinkling up above I close my eyes and saw a Chino In Portofino I found my love You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production, and for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. Muddy Knees. Media.